For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, Democratic candidates for governor discuss funding strategies. Meet author and historian Michael F. Blake. His latest book, The Cowboy President, looks at the legacy and legend of Theodore Roosevelt. How the Dark Skies Initiative is helping Tucson-based astronomy and tourism. And a backstage visit to a local musical production of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The race for governor is already well underway. Three Democrats are hoping to challenge Republican incumbent Doug Ducey in the fall. Last week, these candidates gathered in Tucson for their first Southern Arizona debate which focused mainly on education funding, which has become a hot topic in many states this election season. Christopher Conover reports. The three Democrats running for governor, Kelly Fryer, Steve Farley, and David Garcia, generally agree on their party's principles. Voters will have to pay attention to some of the nuance of their policy positions to see a distinction between them. Take education, for example. All three candidates agree teachers need to be paid more, and more money needs to go to the public K-12 system. But how they pay for that is where the differences lie. State Senator Steve Farley says Arizona gives billions away in corporate tax cuts each year. His solution? Review those cuts and get rid of some of them, adding billions to the amount of money available for education. Senator Farley says 12 years as a member of the Arizona legislature make him confident he could pass a bill like that even if Republicans still hold a majority in the legislature. The good news is the Tea Party actually uh, uh, agrees with us. They think these special interest giveaways are bad news. They want to have a, uh, a system where everyone has a level playing field. So there, it doesn't make any sense, even to the far right, why a lobbyist should be able to get taxpayer money given away. Candidate David Garcia is an instructor at the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at ASU. He says reducing the tax cuts is good, but more needs to be done. He suggests raising the Arizona income tax rate on the top 1% of earners because he says the state can't just, in his words, shuffle money around. It must find new revenue. A 1% income tax on the top 1% not only is going to raise significant dollars for education, but it's going to balance our tax system going forward. But we got to be honest with Arizonans. You can't just shuffle things around and get out of this one. The third candidate in the race is Kelly Fryer. She's the CEO of the YWCA of Southern Arizona. Fryer agrees with the two other Democrats, but her plan goes even further. A sales tax on homes sold for more than $1 million and a tax on vacation properties. We need to bring new revenue into our, into our state budget. And the, and, the, and the way we start with that is we create a millionaire tax. I don't think it's going to be hard to sell a millionaire tax to voters in this state. Um, I mean, it might, might be hard to sell to some millionaires, um, but, 
but not even all of them. The primary in Arizona's race for governor is in August. The three candidates are working to define themselves without politically wounding the others. They all say they want to be sure the Democratic primary winner will be a strong challenger to Governor Ducey in November. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Christopher Conover. One of my favorite quotes of Theodore that when I was working on the book and there were days I'm going like, am I doing something right? And I found great encouragement from it is, it is hard to fail, but it is worse never to have tried to succeed. That was author, historian, actor, and makeup artist Michael F. Blake quoting Theodore Roosevelt. Blake spent more than three years tracing Roosevelt's steps across the Dakota Territory, part of his research for the newly published biography The Cowboy President, The American West, and The Making of Theodore Roosevelt. Blake is also known for writing three volumes about the silent movie actor Lon Chaney and two about different aspects of the American Western. He gets to combine his love for history, acting, and theatrical makeup when he does public appearances as Teddy Roosevelt. The resemblance is striking. Michael Blake will give a talk and sign books next Thursday in Cave Creek. I ask him to stop by the AZPM studio to tell me more about the man known as T.R. You know, they always said President Reagan had great charisma. Theodore had it in spades. I mean, he could just smile at you and literally a room would light up. You know, he just had charisma like you wouldn't believe. What's funny is how many people think he had a deep voice or something like that when he actually had a very high voice. And I was trying to get the voice down and I listened to recordings and the first thing came to mind is he reminded me of William Powell in the early 30s films when he would talk. Why, Asta, that's not quite the way. So it was like, that's the way theater talked. Now take it up an octave. And people heard him. He was probably one of the few presidents who had a real high popularity amongst the people. But he was quite an orator. I mean, people could hear him even after he got shot. You know, he was he was had a uh, assassination attempt made, and thankfully he had an overcoat. He had his jacket. Inside his jacket pocket, on the inside, was a fifty-page speech folded up, and in his vest he had his metal eyeglass case. And the bullet went all through that, went into him. And not far from the heart. Now, had he not had that speech in the eyeglass case, it probably would have killed him. Even though he was hurt, he insisted on giving a 90-minute speech. And at first, people thought he was joking about it. But then when he opened the shirt and showed the blood stain, everybody went silent. And he gave a 90-minute speech, you know, albeit he wasn't as forceful as he normally would be. And went to the hospital, and they wound up leaving the bullet in him. They never took it out. Give us a few words about his vision for what became the National Park System. Tell us, what was the kernel of the idea that he wanted to share with the nation? People back east in his time believed that we had unlimited resources. We were told there's plentiful game, there's plentiful trees, there's plentiful water. So when he gets out there, when he goes out to hunt his buffalo in 1883 and then buys his cattle ranch, 
he realizes that, you know, we don't have an inexhaustible supply here. He's watching forces get clear cut and nobody's going, okay, well, maybe we should reforest. Maybe we shouldn't take everything, leave some. And, and the same thing with the buffalo and, and such. And at that time, we only had Yellowstone as a national park. And the Northern Pacific Railroad wanted to run a railroad through the middle of Yellowstone, if you can imagine. And they wanted to mine, and they wanted to get the timber. And he was aghast at this. So 1887, he founds Boone and Crockett Club. And that was kind of the beginning of protecting the national parks because they worked with Congress to pass laws. And that's when the Army came in to protect the national park. By the time Theodore leaves office, he has set aside 230 million acres, which include eight national parks, 18 national monuments, uh, expands and creates national forests, and sets aside 51 federal bird sanctuaries. So, Michael, you decided to call the book The Cowboy President. Tell us why. Well, he first off, Theodore was referred to many times as the cowboy president. Probably the greatest greatest one was Senator Mark Hanna, who had been a, a close associate of President McKinley. When McKinley is assassinated and Theodore is sworn in as president, Hanna was heard to say, now we've got that damn cowboy. <laughs> uh, I came to it because when I was eight years old, being a cowboy crazy kid, I got a photo book from my parents of U.S. presidents, and I knew about Washington and Lincoln I was somewhat interested in because of my interest in the Civil War. But then I started looking at all the presidents from Lincoln on, and it's like all these guys were around at the time of the Old West. They're all wearing suits and ties and top hats. None yeah. of these guys are cowboys. Mm -hmm. And I turned the page, and there he is in his buckskin shirt, his cowboy hat, gun on his hip, standing next to his horse, and the caption said something to the effect of, Theodore Roosevelt was a Dakota cowboy. And I thought, well, there you go. That fits my pistol. My favorite part of his life was his time as a cowboy. Here he goes west, and he's a sickly, reedy young man. He's got asthma. He had uh, intestinal problems, which today I believe we would probably call it um, Crohn's disease. And he goes west. And after a traumatic thing that happens in his life of losing both his mother and his wife, shortly, just days after she gives birth, both his mother and wife die on the same day. So he just flees to the west. And I see how the West changes him. You know, I see how it's not just the land. And that's where he, the seeds of the conservation president are planted and watered, so to speak. And some people like to say, oh, the cowboy way or the coat of the West. And they put them on plaques now and sell them because it looks nice and all that. It's all very true. And it's still there. On the other hand, let's talk a little bit about his education. What drove him in that area, and how did he become as learned as he was about the world around him? He was homeschooled. All the children were homeschooled because the Roosevelt family was fairly well off. He was a self-taught ornithologist. He just read books, but he read books about what interested him. You could go for a walk with him. He'd hear some, a bird sing, and he'd say, oh, that's a such-and-such -such bird. And he had it right on the dime. He amazed John Burroughs with it when they walked through uh, Yellowstone together. He loved to read. He was horribly nearsighted. I mean, before he got glasses, he couldn't see more than 10 feet away. And that was a good day. 
And of course, when he got his glasses, his world opened up. But he was very much into reading. He, the man winds up as an adult, he reads two books a week and he retained so much. Some people have said that they believed he might have had something close to a photographic memory. Originally, when he went to Harvard, he wanted to do stuff with wildlife and natural science and, and things like that. But what he didn't like about that class was that everybody sat in a lab and looked through microscopes. And he believed, look, if you're going to study wildlife and you're going to study animals, you got to get out in the field. And he could not be cooped up in a room. He had to be out in the open. So he gave that up, and he finished Harvard, and then he went to Columbia Law School. And he got tired of the law school because, again, <laughs> it was all book-related, and he didn't feel that the law was really for the people. You know, it was for a select group. So he gets talked into running for a New York State Assembly, and he runs, and he wins, and he serves his time in New York State Assembly, and that's where he starts his political career. And, and during that time, keep in mind, he, he's a New York State Assemblyman, he's writing books, he's a cattleman, he becomes a civil service commissioner, New York police commissioner, then he becomes the assistant secretary of the Navy, then he leads his Rough Riders up the hills in Cuba during the Spanish-American War, comes back, wins the New York governorship, is then put in the position of vice president because he offended some of the Republican Party bosses and they wanted to bury him. And then what happens? McKinley gets killed and he becomes president. Did he ever get tired of winning? <laughs> no, no. And, you know, he didn't mind losing so much as long as he fought a good fight. Uh, th that's what he wanted. He said, if you lost, as long as you did your best, that was fine, you know. But he rarely lost. Michael F. Blake will share more from his book, The Cowboy President, The American West and the Making of Theodore Roosevelt, at a signing and historical discussion at Watson's Hat Shop in Cave Creek, Arizona, next Thursday, April 19th, from 6 to 8 p.m. There's a link to get tickets on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Since Earth Day was established in the United States in 1970, the event has spread and is now recognized in more than 150 countries. The official date is April 22nd, and this year some Tucsonans are asking you to think about one aspect of our environment that is often disregarded. John Barentine, the Director of Conservation for the International Dark Sky Association, and Dan Gibson of Visit Tucson joined Tony Paniagua for this interview. We'll begin with you, John. Why are you hoping that people pay special attention to our dark skies for Earth Day and throughout the year? We're asking people to look up to be aware of what is really a vanishing resource in the world. It's something that used to be accessible to everybody worldwide, and now because of the phenomenon of light pollution, our access to the night sky is really diminished. And so as people are thinking about environmentalism generally and the challenges that the Earth faces, we want them to remember that one of those is the threat to the night sky. 
And why is it important that we do have dark skies? It's important for a variety of reasons that go well beyond just astronomy. Uh, we know that in addition to the, the problem that's associated with being able to see the night sky, that the subject also touches on everything from wildlife ecology to potential threats to human health, crime and public safety, and even energy security. So there's really something in it for everybody. And Dan, from Visit Tucson, dark skies are a good thing for the economy, apparently. Absolutely. It's, you know, when you're in tourism, when you're trying to market a destination, you want things that are unique. You want uh, somewhere to stand out. And, and obviously, like, we have a number of great things, great Mexican food, great outdoors opportunities. But other cities have those things, too, May not, maybe not in the same degree. But there isn't another major city in the United States that has the accessibility for uh, interacting with the night sky is, is Tucson, whether that's, you know, in a really casual way of just looking up, you know, uh, which, you know, we'll talk to people and they're struck by it. If they're coming from New York or Los Angeles, they're, they're like, I don't remember seeing these, uh, the stars to, you know, really deep interaction with it to, uh, going to somewhere like Mount Lemmon sky center. Uh, we actually have a, a, a journalist a, a little while back that we specifically took to the sky center. It happens actually quite often. Or, uh, you know, somewhere like Cat Mountain Lodge, a B&B that has a telescope on its grounds. Uh, Kit Peak, obviously, is an incredible resource. Or, you know, things that are really casual. People go to Sky Bar and be able to see the night sky and enjoy a drink. Or Borderlands Brewery, which has interactions with um, astronomers and people working in that field. And, John, please tell us a little bit more about International Dark Sky Association. It's, it was actually founded here in Tucson, and its headquarters is in the city. That's right, Tony. We were founded here in 1988, so we're going through our 30th anniversary year right now. And it's no accident that IDA began in Tucson, given that we were founded by one professional astronomer and one amateur astronomer from here in the 1980s who were both concerned about the loss of the night sky to light pollution. But even before that, in the previous decade, in the early 1970s, Tucson was one of the first large cities in the world to adopt a comprehensive lighting ordinance. So for many reasons, it makes sense that we were founded here and we uh, continue to maintain our headquarters here. And you are working with other cities and, for example, parks such as Oracle State Park? Yes, we work with parks and municipalities all over the world through our International Dark Sky Places program, and we certify them for their efforts both to maintain the darkness in places where it still exists and then to try to roll back the effects of light pollution in areas uh, given uh, efforts in public policy and in conservation in different parts of the world. What would be an example of something, quote, easy that a city could do, a municipality, in order to try to qualify for the uh, IDA the most important thing that a municipality could do, for example, uh, to be certified by IDA is to make an outreach effort to its residents, uh, educate them on the benefits of controlling the lighting on their property, reducing what we call light trespass, the tendency of the light to stray across the property line, shielding their lights really well, and paying attention to the spectrum or the color of light because we know that that has the greatest impact, particularly on wildlife. Okay, and then we were speaking ahead of this interview about the scope and accessibility that Tucson provides, that this area in general, southern Arizona, provides when it comes to dark skies. It really is amazing. I mean, I, I grew up here, and people who grew up here, you just sort of get used to this idea of being able to see all this stuff. But it's really striking to people, and it's it's given us this opportunity to talk to, to journalists, to get PR for the uh, for the destination that way, um, you know, Washington Post has written a story uh, in the last year or so, uh, Dallas Morning News. It gives people something to interact with, something that draws them in. And, and it's a distinctive that makes us, that gives us an edge over other places in that way. And then, John, what would you like to say about Sky Glow, the documentary that uh, deals with this issue with the dark skies above us? 
Skyglow is a, an interesting project that took several years to come together and is one that IDA supported uh, along the process while it was being put together. And it's really about trying to show through images the impact of both the night sky in its pristine state as well as, as the title suggests, places where artificial light at night is degrading that and really bring home the importance of it through the visuals. And so we'll be screening a film that the creators of the project uh, put together and that will be followed by a panel discussion, including um, several experts, and we hope to get a lot of good interaction with the audience. And that is on Earth Day, April 22nd. Sunday, April 22nd at The Loft. Okay, John Barentine from the International Dark Sky Association and Dan Gibson from Visit Tucson. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely, thank you. Thanks for having us, Tony. Since 1999, the mission of Arts Express is to build a better community by creating opportunities for children and adults to learn the power of the arts. Building teams of experienced performers and newcomers, the goal is to play to everyone's strengths and to learn by doing. The group's newest production is an ambitious staging of the musical version of Victor Hugo's The Hunchback of Notre Dame, including an orchestra and chorus. The star of the musical is actor and singer Dennis Tamblin, a veteran of the stage for almost two decades. When I visited a rehearsal at the Berger Performing Arts Center, he was getting started by making his transformation into character in the middle of the stage, something he explained is a part of the show. My name is Dennis Tamblin. I would play in the role of Quasimodo. And as you can see, um, Quasimodo means half-formed, and right now I am definitely half-formed. <laughs> so I'm getting all the costume pieces on. <laughs> in this, we're not putting prosthetics on me. We're not. It's it's set up in a way where you should... Your back begs to do Yes. I, <laughs> now, yes, but nothing on my face that makes it all... Because his description in the book is very grotesque. He only has one working eye. He has, like, a lot of problems, like, with physically that we're just kind of ignoring. And so you'll see in the very first part of the show, I come out without a hunch on at all. And then I start dressing myself and becoming the hunchback. And so I have a few things with my makeup going on, you know, that kind of give the hint, but nothing that could distract, you know, from the, from the presentation of the piece. What's really interesting about it is at first I didn't know that the story had deviated from the Disney story. Uh, I knew all the music was there from the Disney um, cartoon, but then when I got the soundtrack and I started listening to all the music, and then it got near the end and I realized, oh wait, this is very tragic <laughs> and very sad, and no spoilers, but uh, it does follow the original Victor Hugo ending. So if you already know what that is, then you know what I'm talking about. I've never seen uh, Disney so dark. What's foremost on your mind in, in essaying this role from a physical standpoint? What are you trying to do? Physically, what I'm trying to do is put myself in a position where I look like a hunchback, but still be able to belt really high notes. And it's hard when you're hunched oh, over. Yeah, because that compresses yeah. your diaphragm. Yeah, right? and the airway isn't as open as I want it to be. So it's really about finding the ways to hunch. And then when I have to sing something that's you know a little substantial or requires a little bit more of my upper body to be upright, then I cheat a little bit. I'm Corbin Myrick, and I'm the stage director for this production of Notre Dame. What's the theme of this play that appeals to you? Something that you want the audience to take home with them after the performance? 
I knew about a song from this show for years, God Help the Outcasts, and I, I taught that to many of my students. And it's, it's the most touching, heartwarming story about basic prejudice and how, you know, there are people of, who are different from other people and how they suffer and how through the ages they've suffered, especially in this time period, in the medieval period. And just the message that, you know, of inclusivity and how important that is and how, how far we still need to go to make that happen in our world today. So that's the biggest message that, that, that this has with the, with the gypsies being outcast, with you know, the hunchback being outcast, and all the prejudice that goes along with that. That's the biggest message for me. Uh, my name is Danae Dorme, and I am playing Esmeralda. What is something about this character that makes her different than a damsel in distress that you might see in a classic story? She very much fights for herself, and she's very, I can do this on my own, I don't need a man to do this for me. She's very in her own self and confident. What part of the show do you look forward to doing the most? What is right now the part you can't wait to get to? I think uh, Rhythm of the Tambourine is my favorite scene. It's a dance number that I do, and it's me dancing for everybody else, and it's just here I am. It's my favorite. I'm Enrique Hank Feldman. I'm the music director and the conductor of the orchestra, and I've worked with Arch Express for the last couple of years. And uh, that's one of the things I do, and it's, uh, I love working with the organization. It's, um, I love that it's a mix of professionals and university and high school students, so there's a lot of fantastic contextual mentoring going on, and it l lets uh, a lot of very talented youth kind of see what is needed at that next level. How much power have you got under the hood for this production? Oh, what man. are you working with here? You know, it's a live orchestra. It's technically about 13, 14 folks, but two of those are keyboard players. Each keyboard has around 120 sounds preloaded so that you get that Disney uh, cinematic effect. Um, and then you have about a 25-piece choir uh, that's not even all here right now from what you've heard. We actually have some of the real divas that are at the TSO rehearsal. And then you have the cast. And the cast is about 35, 38 people. So you're talking in the vicinity of 100 bodies making sound. The very opening is, is surreal. It's, you know, Oli, Oli, it's, you know, it's just really, really subtle and soft. And then, boom, the entire thing drops on the audience. But then certainly the entr'act is just orchestra and chorus, and it's a, it's a war horse. It is, you know, and it's just really gothic. Is there something that you really want to make sure gets in here? Something I didn't ask you about? I just want to thank someone who's a Tucson treasure. Um, he passed away in 2016. Dr. Carol Reinhardt was the director of um, elementary school music in TUSD for many, many years. And I spent the last 14 years of his life with him being mentored. And he created, co-created over 1,500 musicals and operas with young children in his life, kinder through eighth grade. And so, even though he's not with us physically, I know he'd have a huge smile on his face. So thank you, Dr. Reinhardt. This is the last weekend for the Arts Express production of The Hunchback of Notre Dame at the Berger Performing Arts Center, with performances Friday and Saturday at 7 p.m. and matinees Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Information and tickets are at artsexpress.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. 
This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.